Plenty to talk about on today's Inside Politics. Joining me on the panel, Global BC's Keith Baldry, Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer, and BC Today's Shannon Waters. Later in the show, we'll talk to BC Liberals MLA, Ellis Ross, about LNG. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome. It's a cloudy day here in Kamloops ahead of this Thanksgiving long weekend. I can say I'm thankful this morning. We'll be talking to Keith Vaughn and Shen and all welcome. Good morning. Uh, all right, guys, uh, We uh, I think we set the stage nicely to the announcement we saw this week about LNG Canada when we had last week's show. So uh, this thing now official, it's a go. Massive, massive investment in the province. And maybe, Keith, I'll start with you. One of the big complaints uh, has been to date uh, our inability to get natural resource projects off the ground. And then, of course, politically, uh, some of the some of the ideologues saying, OK, listen, uh, we're driving investment out of the province. We're driving investment out of the country. Uh, this seems to fly in the face of all of that. So how did this go so right? Yeah, this stands in stark contrast to a lot of other ones that have failed to get over the finish line. I think one of the key things here is that LNG Canada secured the support of every First Nations along the pipeline route, with the exception of sort of this rogue uh, uh, protester uh, group that's at, uh, at one end of the pipeline, and that will have to be dealt with at some point, likely through a court injunction. But uh, getting First Nations support is key to getting any natural resource uh, development project uh, to the finish line. And it doesn't have to be unanimous, but in this case it was unanimous, and I think that was a real big hurdle that this uh, project was, uh, was able to get over. Also, Let's, you know, make no mistake, there's a big difference, I think, in a lot of people's minds between natural gas and bitumen, and that's the problem with a pipeline project like Trans, uh, Trans Mountain, which is shipping bitumen uh, through a pipeline into tankers that ply the waters where orcas are, and that's a lot different than natural gas being liquefied, put in tankers, where if, it, if uh, there's a, a rupture or a spill, it dissipates into the atmosphere rather than them befouling the coast, and that's a, that's a critical difference between the two. What about location? Vaughn. I mean, if we had this LNG facility sitting in Vancouver with a pipeline that ran from, I don't know, Edmonton through the interior and down to the coast, uh, would that have changed the scenery much or no? You know, that's a good question, and I think the only one that's that far south in the province, well, there's one talked about on the island, there's one uh, which is actually fairly active for Squamish, so there there are more southerly proposals, but uh, now there's a huge advantage, of course, in going to the northwest coast, which, uh, you know, haul your globe out, it's closer to Asia, and that's where the customers are, so being able to get the First Nations uh, on side on this, and look, giving them significant benefit-sharing agreements and jobs and all that. That was key. Um, Ellis Ross, now a Liberal MLA in uh, for Skeena, uh, but was the leader of the highest of the First Nation. He's key to this. Uh, the nice thing about this one, Shane, is there's, it's such a good piece of news for the provincial economy, and we've been working at it for so long that, you know, there's there's lots of people can get credited for it. Uh, graciously, everybody shared that credit around this week, but yeah, this is landmark. Yeah, it is. Uh, Shannon, uh, to Vaughn's point, it was a rare sort of unified front maybe with the exception of, uh, of the Greens and Mr. Weaver, but, I mean, Rich Coleman, uh, Ross Ellis, uh, it just goes on and on. There were people that weren't sort of of the government cabinet uh, that were very much getting uh, kudos and credit, including former Premier Christy Clark. Uh, everyone seemed pretty rosy about this whole thing. 
Yeah, for sure. And I mean, we were watching the announcement and the signing ceremony, and you had um, Andrew Wilkinson, the leader of the BC Liberal Party there. Ellis Ross was there. Mike Bernier, who is the party's um, critic for oil and gas, uh, were also there, as was Rich Coleman. Christy Clark was there. There were actually more, I believe, liberal MLAs and, and former liberal politicians than there were representatives from the current government. Um, Horgan was there, so was our energy minister. Of course, notably absent from all of the proceedings and the celebration and the mile-wide grins was Andrew Weaver and members of his Green Caucus. They were not um, in Vancouver on Tuesday when that announcement happened. Um, And then they spent the rest of the week in question period asking the government how they're going to account for the various environmental impacts of bringing um, an LNG industry into B.C. That includes the emissions, which, of course, Weaver has said uh, cannot be accounted for in the government's um, climate change plan, um, as well as Sonia Firstenau brought up, you know, LNG is a very water-intensive um, industry. It uses a lot of water, and so how is the government sort of going to, um, to deal with increased water demands? Um, so, yeah, I would say pretty much all of the politicians seemed very happy, except for the green ones. So, uh, Rob Shaw did an interesting story this week. Uh, of course, there is no LNG legislation on the table yet, but uh, they do have a tax regime to implement, uh, and potentially uh, the Premier, uh, through Rob Shaw, seems to be suggesting that uh, there's a way around that to avoid sort of an embarrassing situation where the Greens vote against the government keys. Yeah, well, you know, uh, you can get things done, uh, a government can get things done through different uh, mechanisms. Uh, You can pass things through regulation, which is a cabinet order, or proclamation, which in this case applies to that income tax uh, situation. So, uh, yeah, no, uh, it still remains to be seen whether the NDP wants to push everything through a uh, non-legislative route. Uh, They presumably don't want to risk a vote in the legislature in case... um, they were to lose one, but I can't imagine the B.C. Liberals voting against uh, legislation that would propel LNG forward. So mm-hmm. it's really the Greens they've got to worry about, but I think they've got the numbers to make it work in the House. So it's an option for John Horgan and the NDP to avoid the legislature in uh, in uh, making LNG a reality, but I'm not sure it's a, it's a, a complete done deal yet. I think a legislative option is, is possibly on the table, but they don't necessarily need to test the vote of the House. By the way, Rich Coleman was on uh, the Jim Harrison show here on NL yesterday. Uh, he said flat out the Liberals will vote uh, with the NDP on any kind of LNG legislation. I went as far as to say the BC Greens' three votes are quote-unquote irrelevant. Vaughn? Yeah, and I noticed the Greens, uh, after talking for weeks about, well, we're going to vote all this stuff down, uh, they've discovered uh, what how it's actually working. The day the deal was announced, the government passed a cabinet order changing the provincial sales tax for the project. So that's a cabinet order. It's not a vote. Uh, the next day, um, two days later, Shaw and I actually sat down for an interview with the premier. And this is where we asked him about the, yeah, the Income Tax Act. It was brought in by the legislature and passed four years ago. And Horgan said, well, that law is, uh, is actually not active. It's, uh, it's on hold. It needs a cabinet order to implement it, and we could just never sign that cabinet order. And he said that's one of our options. So I think the Greens have realized they're not going to get a vote that they were hoping for. I think the Greens were hoping for a fairly dramatic vote where it would be the three Greens against the Liberals and the NDP, and Andrew Weaver could go out and say, look, I'm the only one standing up to this. And he's now 
really interesting. He has apparently gone all in on this big climate action plan that we're going to get later this fall. Uh, this is the plan chain. We got a briefing on it this week. Yeah. How they're going to make the greenhouse gas numbers from the LNG terminal work with the goal of reducing emissions. And I think we were all, I certainly was struck during that briefing that this will change British Columbia more than LNG. Yes. It's yeah. huge. And Weaver is working on that. So he hasn't completely abandoned the government on this issue. Yeah, John. John Horgan actually told me this week that he uh, and he referred to Andrew Weaver as part of the team, uh, saying they're being very transparent, working with him on that. Uh, just back to the this LNG tax regime, Shannon. Uh, Rich Coleman again yesterday saying, yeah, okay, the government can get around this through cabinet order, etc. But he actually suggested through transparency and public disclosure, it's better to actually hold a vote. Concur or no? Um, it kind of depends on, I think, sort of how the government is weighing its options. In question period yesterday, Andrew Wilkinson did ask the Premier, sort of, what are you hiding? The majority of MLAs in this chamber would support LNG legislation. You should be transparent and accountable, you know, to the legislature and the people of British Columbia and bring this legislation forward. And Horgan kind of said, we've introduced the framework. That's how we're going to go about it. You know, we don't we don't have to bring legislation if we don't want to. And then sort of cap things off by saying, well, of course, like, you know, if and when it is required, we will bring it forward. So, you know, obviously Horgan is thinking that maybe it might be a little easier and a little less of a headache to just kind of do as much as possible or potentially the whole thing through regulation, you know, do the cabinet orders, do not proclaim um, the LNG Income Tax Act, and and do things that way. But then you do run into the issue of is everything being done as a backroom deal, right. you know, not in the light of day. Um, and I do think that's something that the premier probably has in mind because in, in, he has said and implied, you know, that well we're going to see what we can do, you know, as a government without the legislature debate and without legislation. But we're, we also still have the legislation in mind. So I think it just remains to be seen. Uh, Keith, the original promise back in 2013 from the Liberals was three LNG plants uh, on the ground by 2020. Uh, I'm curious to know, I mean, the LNG Canada plant, obviously a welcome decision, but uh, uh, Rich Coleman was raising the idea that, okay, we got the one plant, we build the pipeline, then perhaps the numbers shift, and it makes more sense then for, say, another nearby plant in Kitimatch, another LNG proposal there, and then one in Prince Rupert perhaps could go one and two, saying, okay, listen, if we share these resources, if we share the pipeline, all of a sudden the economic numbers shift enough that we're we're a go and we're a go. What do you think? Well, I think we're a ways away from that. I think the next one uh, that's going to be a go is the wood fiber plant near Squamish, mm. down in uh, just outside Metro Vancouver. Uh, Vaughn's point about the climate action plan is a, is a key one. All these things have to fit within that climate action plan. And, uh, plan. and any LNG project is going to greatly uh, increase greenhouse gas emissions. But the briefing we got on that was, uh, and I agree with Vaughn, it, you know, the ramifications of that climate action plan are going to change our lives more than LNG is because we're talking about massive amounts of electrification that are going to have to occur. Getting people off of fossil fuels on a number of fronts, whether it's housing, heating your homes, driving your car, and getting you into electrification over a period of years is a huge shift in British Columbia. And so any new LNG plan would have to fit within that plan as well. And I think it's going to take an enormous amount of uh, electrification just to accommodate the LNG 
LNG Canada plant and the emissions that come with that, let alone other other LNG plants that may come online. So Coleman may be correct over a period of time, but I think in the short term, uh, I think wood fiber is the best bet. But beyond that, I'm not, uh, not sure another one's going to get across the finish line. Okay, well, if we take that into account, uh, I know the Premier said uh, when he started chatting with me this week that if he, the $23 billion in revenue he's going to get from the LNG Canada plant could, in his words, be used for targeted investment uh, and or incentives to, to get people to, I don't know, drive uh, drive electric cars versus uh, gas-guzzling uh, engines, reduce emissions in other sectors that way in order to squeeze in the LNG plant. Sound feasible, Vaughn? Yeah, I guess that would be it. Uh, I mean... We're, we're several more hurdles to go before we get all this. So we get the climate action plan this session late, we're told, maybe before, just before the House adjourns, maybe just after. And that'll get us 75% of the way to that target. And then we get phase two in, the, in 2019, and there's got to be consultations and all that, and that's supposed to get us the rest of the way. And then you're right. Then we go, okay, they, uh, uh, wood fiber might work because it's electrical direct drive, so it doesn't have a lot of emissions. I don't know what will happen beyond that. I think then you get into we're a long way down the road. This terminal, the first one with the two trains, uh, we were told the other day, I think Keith, uh, up and running by, and Shannon, up and running by 2024, I think. So we've got, what, that's one or two elections away, depending on Mr. Weaver and Mr. Horgan. Yeah. Uh, uh, Shannon, as far as, as the environmental side of things, how does sort of Site C and the electrification side fit in with LNG Canada? I got the sense that it may play some role, but it's not going to foot the entire load. Yeah, and we were told in the technical briefing with senior government staff regarding sort of the climate plan and, and the massive electrification that's going to be needed to offset these LNG emissions that there is no direct link between the government's approval for Site C and this LNG industry that we're now seeing. But it's difficult to imagine that that wasn't sort of part of the math when the government did decide to proceed with Site C. Um, but even Site C, even this, you know, this massive mega dam is not going to bring in sort of enough electricity to to match what the government says we're going to need to do in terms of electrification. Now, as, as you said, Horgan has said that, you know, we can um, use them money from LNG to fund renewables and start sort of innovating around that. I mean, there's, there's not a lot of specifics in some aspects of this plan. It's just kind of like, well, you know, there's going to be new technology and new ideas and sort of um, new ways to make our other operations less emissions heavy and more environmentally friendly. Um, I don't know. It, it seems very... Um, it's, it's a big ask, and it's a big reach, and I think it's going to be interesting to see exactly how the government goes about getting there. All right, uh, let's continue our conversation on uh, LNG Canada and a bit of a trans-mountain bend. We'll take a quick break and pick it up with Keith, uh, Shannon, and Vaughn on Inside Politics right after this. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. 
Welcome back. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry, and Shannon Waters. Uh, continuing the discussion on LNG Canada, Alberta Premier Rachel Notley took to Twitter a day or two ago to uh, provide some congratulations on that front, but she also used it uh, as a bit of a battering ram against uh, Premier John Horgan, saying, well, listen, you're going to get a 73% tanker increase on BC's north coast, uh, and yet you're opposing uh, Trans Mountain and basically the same uh, ideologue on the south coast. However, the Premier says, hey, that's not true. He says uh, to me that it's a marginal increase in the north while it's a massive increase on the south. Vaughn, what's going on here? Well, uh, you know, the Premier of Alberta is heading into an election next year, and she's reflecting the view in her province that many British Columbians are staggering hypocrites on this issue. And I think she has a bit of a point. I think some of the opposition to uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline is is self-serving for British Columbia. We don't have any oil. We've got a lot of gas. But there is some significant differences, too. It's been pointed out many times when a bitumen pipeline ruptures, an oil pipeline rupture, it goes all over the landscape. And a, and a natural gas pipeline, which is not a nice thing to have it rupture, but it does vent into the atmosphere. The tankers up north, uh, they won't pose as much uh, of a threat, obviously, to the southern orca population as tankers down here. Um, and again, uh, LNG tankers, in terms of spills, don't pose the kind of risk that oil tankers do. So there are differences. Uh, having said that, there's some politics going, self-interest going on here as well. Uh, Shannon, is it fair to kind of compare and contrast uh, the Premier's stance on Trans Mountain versus LNG Canada? I mean, John Horgan will tell you, no, 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 listen, that's apples to oranges. I mean, they're both resource development projects. There are pipelines involved. There are tankers involved. There's terminals involved. I think apples to oranges is maybe not particularly accurate. Uh, maybe different varieties of apples, like Granny Smith's Red Delicious <laughs> or something. I don't know. But um, they're definitely, you know, as Vaughn says, like for the province of B.C., like gas for us makes a lot of sense. We have a lot of it within the province. It creates a lot of jobs within the province rather than, say, the Trans Mountain Pipeline where many of the jobs are sort of in Alberta in the oil fields. And many in B.C. feel that Alberta gets sort of the sweet side of that deal while B.C. takes on all of the risk. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they're, they're both resource development and and. And there are people who don't approve of the LNG project here in BC as well. BC Green supporters, the Green Caucus themselves, and there are concerns around sort of shipping in northern BC. That's some rough water that those tankers are going to be going through. But as pointed out, when natural gas spills, it just kind of disappears on you rather than having to deal with a substance like bitumen. Yeah, uh, Shannon getting to the core of the matter there. Yeah. Keith, uh, Keith, what do you think? Well, the, uh, it was an interesting moment this week. John Horgan was in my office. He just finished an interview with my colleague Richard Zussman and Vaughn, whose office is next to mine, came over and we were chatting. And John Horgan expressed his gratitude. It's sort of his, not his gratitude, but it's sort of acknowledgement that one I remember when we first met John Horgan and where he was working way back in the day, in the 90s, in the NDP government, he was working in the energy ministry. Yeah. He was working to develop the gas fields in northeast, um, northeast B.C. So that's where his history is, is that he very much has been part of the LNG uh, natural gas uh, discussion since he began his, his career as a civil servant. So there's no surprise at all that he would be supportive of LNG. But I still maintain it's not a giant leap to go from LNG to trans, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which I've always thought John Horgan's opposition to the pipeline is not as uh, 
deeply rooted as some of his colleagues' opposition is. Because, uh, again, back in the 90s in that ministry, the Trans Mountain Pipeline would have been very much part of what they support and what they were working to establish. And I, I just can't, I have a hard time separating the John Horgan I've known for many years from, from the John Horgan back in the 90s who would have been supporting the, the Trans Mountain Pipeline along with the Allen G. Canada project. And uh, I, I've just never detected a, a real fervor by him about opposing the TM Pipeline. Yeah, true enough. Okay, uh, we're to the bottom of the hour here. Let's take a quick break, get caught up to the news, and we'll pick up our conversation with Keith Vaughn and Shannon right after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. For Kamloops Computer Center. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome back. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry, and Shannon Waters, talking a little proportional representation. Uh, we all know Andrew Wilkinson challenged the Premier to that debate not so long ago. Uh, he seemed to indicate uh, earlier this week that that debate is a go. However, uh, Keith, I understand you have a public service announcement on this media consortium uh, reference. Yeah, I think the Premier got ahead of himself yesterday saying he's talking to the, the consortium, like we're some sort of James Bond uh, uh, organization. Uh, no, so the consortium of media uh, outlets comes together during election times to run the election, televised leaders' uh, uh, election debate. There's no consortium right now. There's no there's no getting together by any of uh, the TV stations to host a debate by the by featuring the premier and Andrew Wilkinson. And who knows about Andrew Weaver? It's very preliminary. It's uh, there's been some feelers out there. I know uh, some expressions of interest by some of the stations to go it alone and maybe host some kind of debate, who knows what format it would take, but it's very early days, there's no agreement, there's no uh, set in stone, there's no active negotiations, it's, uh, the Premier's basically saying, I, I, I'm willing to debate him, Wilkinson saying, I'm willing to debate him, but it's one thing to say I want to debate someone, and then to actually pull off uh, uh, such an event, and I've been someone who's basically negotiated the last five or six election debates, these are very, very tricky things to pull off, very complicated, a lot of work goes in to them. So there may be a debate uh, there may not be. In any event, nothing's going to happen until after the civic elections are completed on October 20th. Once that's out of the way, I suspect you're going to see a little more uh, uh, intense negotiations involving all the parties. Maybe the stations come together, maybe they don't. Uh, but as I say, we're very early days on this, and I wouldn't guarantee there's going to be a debate on TV. I think technically the four of us qualify as a consortium. Maybe we could hammer it out right now. Uh, <laughs> I, love, I love Baldry denying there's a consortium and then confirming he's been a member of it for the last <laughs> provincial elections. Uh, people know how to deal with that kind of denial, I think. <laughs> hey, the big question is, is it is it Weaver and Wilkinson and Horgan? In yeah. which case you got a two-to-one gang up on Wilkinson. Yeah. Yeah. Or is it just a debate about do we want PR or not, in which case two leaders would be enough? Yeah, I think... I'll try telling that to Andrew Weaver. Yeah, uh, although Andrew Wilkinson is open to having Mr. Weaver join, but uh, ideally he wants a mano a mano. Uh, I still maintain that this, I mean, you look at that Angus Reid poll from last week, uh, you look at the level of disinterest among the public, I mean, at the very basic element, I think uh, a debate between Wilkinson and Mr. Horgan would be good uh, from a, uh, just a raising a profile, trying to get some more voters interested in this thing, Shannon. 
Yeah, I do think you're right there. There's, I mean, right now, as the Premier has kind of pointed out, municipal elections are coming up and, and people are, are sort of taken with that. Hopefully, you know, paying attention to their local candidates and attending events locally um, and that we will have some time after the municipal elections to um, discuss what's going to go on with the referendum. Um, but you're right, there's, and there hasn't really been, even since the referendum was announced, there hasn't been a whole ton of interest from the general population. I mean, those of us who live sort of within the political bubble of the legislature and, and whatever are focused on it, are talking about it, but it's complicated. Um, th there are three different systems that many people have never heard of. Um, some of them are novel. Some of them have been designed to sort of take these rural-urban splits um, into account. So, yeah, I do think that being, you know, the leader of the province and the leader of the opposition on TV or, as I pointed out, hopefully also on social media because not a lot of young people consume traditional media and those people, I think, make up a large part of the people who are not particularly interested in this issue at the moment. But having this big public sort of banner event could help get people interested in the referendum itself. Yeah, I, uh, one of the things that happened recently that caught my ear was, uh, and it addresses one of my concerns, uh, the Surrey Board of Trade calling for the fall referendum be cancelled, uh, not the whole thing cancelled, but essentially put further down the road. We can have a lot more time to, to get into this and to understand it before we go to a vote. Uh, however, Attorney General David Eby basically slamming the door on that idea. Vaughn? Yeah, I think that's uh, where we're headed on that, too. I'm not... I, I really don't know where that one's going to come out, I must say. Yeah. Oh, you made a point just a minute ago on, on social media about the turnout. Well, Okay, so the turnout issue is, uh, look, it, it'll probably do as well as, uh, let's say it does as well as the HST reference. That's 52% turnout. And, uh, okay, that's good. The Angus Reid poll suggested it'll be close. I think that's probably a good guess. But suppose uh, the first vote is PR. So that's, say it's 52%. So you're now half of a half. Well, then you go to the third ballot, the second ballot, and that's the interesting one because there are three options. Um, Probably, Shane, we should be spending most of our time looking at MMP because that's the one the polling suggests people are going to pick. And I've talked to New Democrats and Greens, and they agree. It's the system that is used elsewhere in the world. The other two systems are unknowns. So suppose, again, it carries the day, as the poll suggested, by 52%. So now you're 52% of 52% of 52%. You're down to 15% of the population actually picking this thing. And, you know, PR advocates keep telling us, no, no, this is going to be a great new system we're going to get because after all uh, you know the majority is going to decide things well you've got a fairly small group of people deciding this one and the problem that i've pointed to a bunch of times is i can't tell you how mmp is going to work because david eby has withheld a dozen aspects of that system to be decided after the fact yeah. most of them will be decided by politicians mm -hmm. so I think that taints the whole process. It's very hard to explain to people how this is going to work because David Eby has engineered it so we won't know until after the vote is over how it's yeah. going to work. Yeah, and, and I'm not even opposed to, to proportional representation, and I think the system is, or the process itself is much, much too short. Keith, is there, is there a turnout level that devalidates this whole thing? I mean, we get 14% turnout or something. I mean, is there, is there a level where even the government's like, well, uh, we can't really defend that? Well, the only thing the government's done is to, um, commit to a, another referendum two elections from now, but, you know, you can't 
tie a government's hands to elections for now. So I'm not sure if that's a valid uh, a valid promise. So Vaughn's right. I've been saying since day one. I instantly did the math when he came out with this and said, wait a minute. It, it could very well end up that less than 20% of the population will determine uh, what for, what model we're going to have. And then a, a small group of politicians, which will be dominated by the Greens and the NDP on that committee, the Liberals will be a minority, will be determining all the fine point. How many MLAs there's going to be? Uh, the Electoral Boundaries Commission, as it does now, will set the boundaries, but the number of uh, elected politicians will be set by the politicians. So this thing has been, this process has been gamed from the start by David Eby. Um, it's been set up, to, I think, to tilt to um, ensure we have a mixed member uh, model emerge, but the, f- the fine print and the details will be set by the politicians and not by, by the general public. And again, the odds favor a very small group of people in BC ultimately determining uh, our electoral system. And turning the, the the, the concept that's been sort of the bedrock of BC elected uh, representation model for decades has been that we artificially protect the regions outside of Metro Vancouver to ensure they have adequate uh, representation. So yeah. you look at a place like the Chaco Lakes or Peace River South or a number of other writings where there are only 15,000 uh, registered voters and they have one MLA. Well, so does Vancouver West End have one MLA, yet there's about almost 40,000 uh, uh, registered voters in that area. That whole concept will be flipped on its head as a result of PR, and I'm not sure it's valid to let 15% of the population make that call. And it's uh, if, if there's a low turnout and a low percentage opting for a, for a model, I think it's uh, it's not a good day for democracy. Yeah. Uh, okay, we're almost out of time. I do want to jam this in right here at the end. Uh, we've had a week of this new uh, fall uh, sitting of the legislature. Uh, Shannon, why don't we start with you? Uh, just kind of curious what, if anything, has stood out to you so far. Well, it's always nice to be back in the mix. This is my second fall session. It definitely started with a lot less pomp and circumstance than the session last year, obviously, when the new government was was taking its seat in the House. Um, My favorite part of the day tends to be question period. I live tweet it, and it's always sort of entertaining to um, watch the politicians exercise a little bit of political theater. Um, We had a very somber question period early in the week. Um, Liberal Party leader Andrew Wilkinson being very conciliatory to the government's efforts on the overdose crisis, um, while also suggesting that B.C. needs a prescription monitoring program in order to help address the overdose crisis um and then we were right back on thursday to just lots of heckling and desk banging and the speaker having to caution members multiple times to let both questioners and answers um be heard so it's always fun to be back in the house <laughs> Vaughn, what's what stood out for you so far? Uh, two great speeches yesterday, uh, both of which are recommended. One was Bowen Ma dealing with the Me Too issue and the uh, big controversy in the state. So the New Democrat, North Vancouver, I thought she was very good. And Ellis Ross, uh, First Nations uh, guy and a liberal M- MLA, uh, talking about poverty. You know, uh, they do sometimes really, really distinguish themselves in that place. And uh, it's worth singling it out when it happens. Uh, I thought they behaved themselves very well. Uh, some of the politicians, too, this week on the LNG, uh, you know, from the Premier inviting Rich Coleman to be there to Christy Clark giving the NDP credit. So, you know, our politicians don't always, don't always, sometimes don't embarrass themselves, and I guess on those occasions we should point it out. Final word to you, Keith. Well, yeah, Bowen and Ellis' uh, speeches were certainly set up and take notice moments, um, and kudos to them. And it was funny to watch everybody 
admiration about to LNG and slapping each other on the back about getting this thing done. But make no mistake, I think after the Thanksgiving break next week, I think you're going to see these guys come back in here and it's going to be a, uh, already there's signs of, I think, a little more chippiness and a little more uh, nastiness than we saw in the spring session. I think the Liberals realize they've got to sort of get their act together as opposition and start being a little more aggressive in their critique of the NDP government than they haven't been up until now. All right, uh, guys, thanks again for a great show. Uh, Vaughn, best of luck. You're uh, you're about to go under the knife and have a few weeks off, so wish you a speedy recovery. Thank you very much for the good wishes. Looking forward to it being uh, over. Yeah, I bet. Uh, happy Thanksgiving, guys. Okay, bye-bye. There we go. Keith Baldry, Shannon Waters, and Vaughn Palmer. We'll take a quick break. On the other side, uh, the BC Liberals MLA for Skeena, Ellis Ross, joins us to talk LNG. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome back. Thank you for tuning in this morning. My next guest was formerly the, the, the counselor, then chief counselor for High Isla First Nation, uh, currently the MLA for Skeena and the official opposition critic for LNG. Welcome, Ellis Ross. Thank you very much. How are you doing? Good? Are you kidding? I'm home. <laughs> uh, Alice, I wanted to ask you off the top. Uh, you've gotten a lot of uh, praise for uh, the LNG file. Um, I was really interested in how you reacted to it. it. It seemed very personal, almost emotional for you. I think you even took to Twitter at one point and said something along the lines of, I can't believe this is happening. So uh, why so personal for you? Uh, a number of reasons. Uh, you know, First of all, I spent 14 years working on LNG, uh, but uh, unlike everybody else, I was actually trying to deal with something I was looking at every day for most of my life. I was looking at poverty. I was looking at uh, the exclusion of First Nations from not only the economy, but kind of society in general. And I could see the w this is the way through us and title to get us to the table and get us to the standard of living that everybody else enjoys in Canada. How do we get the rest of the way? Well, you know, I, I think with uh, this project and uh, with the FID going on, and we've already proven it in a small scale when they're doing the groundworks, we've already proven we can close that economic gap. The rest of it, it will take care of itself. Uh, I'm curious, and I brought this up with Keith earlier in the show, but, uh, you know, so many times the complaint in this country and in this province is we can't get a natural resource project uh, to a shovel in the ground stage. It's either caught up in assessment hell, it's a tug of war between ideologues, uh, governments either too much for or too too much against, uh, and everything kind of goes into the crapper. It's, it's odd, um, it's interesting to see the LNG Canada facility come to fruition. Yes, it took a, a little bit of time, uh, but you don't see people lighting torches and pulling out their hair and, and causing a big fuss and, and a whole being a whole brouhaha. It seemed, you know, relative to what's going on out there to be a fairly no-fuss, no-muss process. How did we get this one so right in your mind? You know, I, I really think that, well, number one, I didn't allow the propaganda machine to come into Kitimat. I didn't allow the environmentalist organization, the activists, to, to take a foothold in my community. They asked, but I refused. Because I saw the example of what they did uh, once previously back for the Heisel Band back in the 90s, back in the 80s and 90s, promising a, a, a economy based on tourism and eco-experience and everybody's going to be working. And then to, so we saved the chunk of forest, 
the activists leave, and then we're still left in the same situation we were in terms of poverty and everything else. So I refuse to let that happen in Kitimat. Uh, what I said is, okay, Kitimat, we're going to do this on our own, and we're the only people we're going to bring on are the people that can give us solid information and give us strong support in terms of what we're trying to achieve. This week in Kamloops, uh, the Union of BC Indian Chiefs held uh, their 50th annual convention. Uh, among the topics raised was they wanted to skew away from consultation to uh, more acceptance and inclusion when it comes to natural resource projects for uh, First Nations uh, laws, uh, ways of life, etc. How do we, uh, it seems like the for the most part, I believe there's sort of one group that may, may not be all for this, but for the most part along the pipeline route all the way to Kitimat, uh, First Nations have signed on and embraced this economic opportunity so how do we or what can we take from that experience and and apply to other natural resource projects across the province to address uh the needs of first nations well number one stop listening to outside organizations whether they be first nation organizations or not i mean it's got to be a community deciding exactly what they want to achieve if you want to get out of poverty okay let's do it here are our options and number two, if we're going to actually do that, we've got to look at leadership. I've been to conferences where we're talking about poverty and we're talking about economic development, and everybody's complaining and screaming about the white man or the government, and they continue to slow us down. Well, that might be true maybe 50 years ago, but that's not true today. So the rhetoric that's there 50 years ago, 20 years ago, it's not there today, and yet the message hasn't changed. If you look at what's going on right now, Industry and government are begging First Nations to come to the table in the face of opportunity. What I do like is a new generation of leaders, very progressive, very open-minded, and they can see through the politics, and they can see through the strategies of 20 years ago that just don't apply today. I'm uh, curious to know, Rich Coleman raised this with me uh, when we were chatting yesterday. Uh, LNG Canada, a go, a green light, great news. Uh, but he was suggesting if you forge the pipeline, we build the LNG Canada facility, there's a chance to, uh, with the pipeline, share resources and perhaps the numbers change and the other LNG facility that uh, that is uh, on the table in Kitimat and perhaps the nearby one near Prince Rupert uh, might say, okay, look, uh, financially this makes way more sense. Uh, we're a go and we're a go. Your thoughts on that? It's, uh, it's always been a, a, a suggestion in our territory, the consolidation of efforts. Uh, but, you know, th these corporations are competitors. Uh, I, I don't know what kind of pressure that the government can put on these companies to actually achieve that kind of cooperation. It makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, it would save a lot of time. And it's time and money, especially when you're considering if you're going to propose a project in B.C. right now, and you want to get through an environmental assessment, it's going to cost you at least $20 million just to get your environmental certificate. So if they're going to make the standards even higher, I can only imagine the cost to get an environmental assessment and your certificates are going to get higher. So I think these companies are going to have to consider uh, scales of economy in terms of how to get these projects just to the environmental certificate stage. Uh, I'm curious what you think of, uh, in, in moving to the Trans Mountain Pipeline, there's a group of First Nations uh, from Alberta through the interior uh, who are busy working on a proposal to, to buy either a large stake in or buy the pipeline outright. Uh, your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, it's actually an incredible involvement, especially when you talk about a very progressive band out of Alberta, uh, Fort McKay, that, that has the capital for it. 
that has the experience, that has the political savvy to do it. I mean, over, over here in BC, we're just getting started and getting engaged with uh, major projects. And equity has always been on the table for every one of the projects that we've been negotiated, but I encourage my people not to, to engage with equity at this point. We're just not ready. I mean, I mean, put in perspective, uh, we're still trying to figure out the principles of the Hyde Court case on the duty to consult and accommodate. We're just trying to understand right now what it means to fully develop a business plan in our own right. And when you're talking about uh, equity in a major project like uh, King Morgan or, say, LNG Canada or Chevron, then you also got to consider liability, responsibility, uh, board membership. And it's, that is a huge task, especially when First Nations don't even understand the nature of Aboriginal rights title in the first place or even... I guess my last question is, in light of everything you've just told me over the last 10 minutes, is it, is it a little crazy that uh, it's 2018 and we're still, uh, from a First Nations perspective, playing so much catch-up? Uh, no, not really, because uh, when you're talking about the duty to consult the comedy, uh, when I was talking to First Nation leaders, a lot of First Nation leaders didn't understand the value of that court case. They didn't understand it and how to, to apply it, uh, not only with uh, f- uh, industry, but as well as how to apply it in First Nations uh, other, and government to achieve what they're trying to achieve. The unfortunate thing about all this is that even when they're trying to come to grips with the, they better place the table now under the rights and title case law, now UNDRIP is being thrown into the mix. The United Nations Declaration of the Rights of the Business People. Now this, this this UNDRIP, it's gonna it's gonna guarantee another twenty thirty years of employment for political leaders, lawyers, consultants, just to understand the principles of that. Even though principles of case law are were pretty much defined in the courts of uh, BC and Canada already, it's a pretty sad situation. Yeah, no kidding, Ellis. Uh, it was a pleasure chatting with you. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, hopefully, we can get you back on again sometime. I'd I'd welcome uh, picking up this conversation at some point in the future. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Thank you, sir. Uh, there's Ellis Ross. He's the BC Liberals MLA for Skeena. Obviously, welcome the LNG Canada decision this week. That's it for today's show. My thanks to you for listening. And, of course, my guests, Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, Shannon Waters, and Ellis Ross. Uh, we're taking a bit of a break, although there is a show coming your way next week. It's one I've uh, put in the can on the marijuana front. Uh, I'm off on holidays for next week, but we'll, uh, we'll see you again here on Inside Politics and Radio Now shortly after that. 106.7 Logan Lake, 98.1 Blue River, 97.5 Avola. From CHNL in Kamloops, this is Radio NL 610 AM. Local News Now.